During the Middle Ages, in Europe at least, many universities taught what were called the seven sciences. Seven sciences of that era, at least. And those were grammar, logic, rhetoric, mathematics, geometry, music, and astronomy. That looks different from our sciences today. But do you know what they called the queen of the sciences? Theology. Of all the knowledge that could be acquired about the natural world from devout study, none of it meant anything. None of it could mean anything without a working knowledge of who God is as the Creator of all these things. And that ordering of these things was important. How can we know what the world is or what it means if we don't know the God who created it and what He meant? But in our modern years, that axiom has almost been totally reversed, it seems. Today, it's science that is queen over theology. What we can observe through telescopes and under microscopes today is the core of what we believe as a society. Anything that is not quantifiable or empirical or observable through the scientific process is all but dismissed. In other words, if we cannot detect God through quantum physics, if we can't explain God through evolutionary biology, then God, in fact, is not real. And so in a world where we believe that because we cannot see God physically out there in the universe, then God must not be real. And the gods we make for ourselves, gods of of money and sex and power and fame, become the substitute for the God we don't think we can find in the universe. And so as German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche noted, God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed Him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? What he understood, I think, rightly, and this is coming from an atheistic philosopher, once we remove God as a transcendent being, from creation, once we remove Creator from creation, then everything starts to fall apart. Now why do I bring all this up? Well, because this morning's passage, I believe, shows us what happens when we, creatures, human beings, begin to worship creation instead of Creator. When science or sex when wealth or weapons, when politics or power become our gods, this is what the world begins to look like. Do you know what happens when creatures worship creation instead of the Creator? Instead of this being the paradise that God made it to be for humanity, when we worship things instead of God, when we worship ourselves instead of Him, what we find is we unleash a veritable hell on earth Chaos and creation. See, prideful human beings make poor gods. We have a hard time believing that. Whether it's pharaohs or priests or prophets or presidents, nobody, even the most exemplary people in society, are worthy enough to bear the laud and the honor that we rightly give only to God. 
misplaced pride in ourselves or in our institutions will never bring us the peace that we so desperately need in this chaotic world. So last week, the war between the Lord and Pharaoh got underway. God fired His warning shot when when Aaron's staff became not just a serpent, but like a sea serpent in Pharaoh's court. And it devoured up these puny little snakes of Pharaoh's pagan magicians. But still we read, Pharaoh's heart was hard, just as the Lord said it would be. Then God decided it's time to open fire. And He he did so by changing all of the life-giving water in Egypt. All of the that beautiful, rich, luscious water in the Nile turned it into festering blood. And it's interesting that the magicians who try to compete can only duplicate what God has already done. They can't reverse the curse. They can only intensify it. And what we begin to see in these ecological attacks on Egypt that they are also theological attacks on Egypt's gods. See, after nine horrific blows against Egypt's self-sufficient economy and their political despotism and their spiritual idolatry, what the Lord is really telling us, He reveals in Exodus 12.12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals, I am the Lord, and in case you haven't noticed, I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt, including the god of self. Perhaps the most sinister god. Because this god still exists in our modern world. Just as Pharaoh worshipped himself, his regime, his power, his luxurious wealth, what he could do, the race of the Egyptians, just as he worshipped those things instead of God, so do we worship the same things today. We worship being an American. We worship uh, uh, having a certain amount of status in our society. We worship our accomplishments. We worship our leisure, our comfort. We worship ourselves. But God will execute judgments against every false god in Egypt and America and every place where idolatry exists. So what kind of gods does the Lord execute? We see that Egypt's water gods, symbolized by the Nile and frogs and these mysterious little gnats, He destroys those gods. And He goes after the land gods of Egypt through the destruction that flies bring, through the death of cattle, and and through an outbreak of plague that affects all of the Egyptians. And finally, next week, we'll see how he even lays low Egypt's loftiest gods, their most ideal gods, when he goes after their sky gods, sending hail from the skies, locusts descending from the clouds, and the creme de la creme, the blackening of the sun. When the worship creation betrays the worshiping Egyptians, then they will see, and perhaps all these centuries later, we will know that Yahweh is the only God over sea 
and land and sky, and He alone is Lord. So let's look at our text this morning. And let's begin with something as harmless, seemingly as silly and trite as, as frogs. Nobody, maybe unless you have a kind of a fear of, of slimy, amphibious things in the first place, nobody's ever been scared of frogs before. Now so you'll recall that last week the Nile, which was again the, 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 the powerhouse of, of Pharaoh's economy, it's how they transported goods from all over the known world. It's, it's what sustained their crops, what they used for irrigation. It's what allowed them to, to water their, their horses and, and cattle to, to muster up a strong military power. The Nile is the source of Egypt's power and life. And it's the place where Pharaoh goes down to, to leisurely bathe his own skin. But it's also, we remember, the place where his predecessor tries to destroy God's chosen people by putting their babies into it to let them drown. And God turns this place, supposed to be give life and leisure, He shows it for what it really is. He turns it into blood. Which is what Pharaoh had done originally. And Pharaoh complained once about the stench of the Hebrews, but now it's his own people that are choking and gagging on the stench of this curdling blood. The blood that's all over their hands. The bloodshed that they're all guilty of. And this grotesque blow against Pharaoh only hardens his heart. He ignores the Lord's power. And Pharaoh is so detached from reality that he doesn't even mourn his own gods. He doesn't even mourn that the false god Osiris, god of the Nile, lays dead in the water with an arrow from Yahweh's bow piercing his heart. That wasn't enough to get his attention. So the Lord goes after another one of Pharaoh's deities. He goes after Heket, the frog goddess, symbolizing fertility, who supposedly the one that breathed life into all the Egyptians. And so these sacred creatures that are frogs were protected. They weren't allowed to be extinguished or killed under Egyptian law. And here they are, erupting out of this bloody Nile, spreading all over the land. So many frogs came out of these death waters in verse 3 and 4 that we read that nobody, not the poorest of the poor or the highest of the high, could sleep without a frog bouncing around in their pillow. They couldn't even go to make a piece of bread without frogs being in their kneading bowls. Everywhere they looked, frogs came spilling out. Things that they weren't allowed to destroy or kill or harm in any way. And as James Boyce so memorably says, what once was an object of reverence became an object of their loathing. What they once worshipped came back to haunt them. The goddess that represented fertility, ironically, by the Lord's hand proliferates so much that hardly a square foot of Egypt didn't have a frog in it, driving the people mad. Heket was also the goddess of midwives who was supposed to assist in the births of Egyptian children. And so I can't help but think, and God's own 
poetic justice in his own ironic way, Pharaoh's sins against the, the Hebrew midwives and mothers has come back with a croaking vengeance. In verse 7, the court sorcerers try to help alleviate the problem, and they just make twice the amount of frogs. By verse 8, Pharaoh goes so insane that he begs Moses and Aaron to have the Lord call off his frogs. Not Egypt's, mind you. Not Heket's, not Pharaoh's. Call off the Lord's frogs. By tomorrow, Pharaoh wants them gone, and so Moses asks the Lord to work, and the Lord graciously works on Moses' behalf. The frogs stop pouring out of the Nile, but the ones that are on the land, they die. And ironically, they create an even worse stench in Egypt. Pharaoh said, those Hebrew slaves stink to me? Well, wait until all these frog carcasses are piled in mounds in their courtyards and bedrooms and out in their fields. But do you think a rancid river or these acrid amphibians get Pharaoh to yield to the Lord? Do you think they break him out of the distraction of his own sin and pride? In verse 15, after he sees some relief, he does what we so often do. When we get relief, we harden our heart again. Osiris and Heket are dead, and he won't even send flowers to their funeral. But let's continue on. Pharaoh has chosen the hard way, and the Lord obliges him in that. And so he tells Aaron to go and, and strike the, the sandy shores next to the Nile with his staff and kick up a cloud of dust. And when he does, that cloud of dust becomes some kind of indeterminate pest that gnaws on the flesh of all human beings and animals in Egypt. Now some scholars have debated this. The, the word gnat is kind of a generic word because we're not really sure what the animal was. Some think that it was maybe lice, perhaps. That makes sense. But some think that it might mean mosquitoes, which would have a connection again to the Nile. That's where they would make their home and that's where they would breed. So after they... And you think about the connection of the, the ecosystem here. The Nile turns to blood. The frogs come pouring out of it. The frogs die. And they're the ones that eat mosquitoes. And then the mosquitoes get out of control. Whatever varmint they turned out to be, these little vampiric bugs tormented the people so greatly that finally Pharaoh's wizards could not even replicate what was going on. Creation is getting so out of control. The natural cycle of things is so out of whack. And so since Osiris and Heket, these pagan gods, were now slain, the last line of defense between sea and land was Geb, the shore god, the god of the land. But lo and behold, Yahweh has sniped him too. And the failed magicians finally start to wake up where Pharaoh refuses to. They, in a panic, say, this is the accusing finger of the Hebrew God. The one they call Yahweh. We can't do anything about this. The implication is they're begging Pharaoh. His own administration, relinquish. We can't do anything to stop this God. They get wise. But do you think Pharaoh listens to God or Moses or even his own administration? Again, 
He hardens his heart just as the Lord said. It's baffling to us that he could do this. But folks, again, like we were saying last week, we have to assess our heart as if it were Pharaoh's heart. Because so little separates us from Pharaoh. The same sins, the same pride courses through our lives. And when God speaks, it's so easy to plug our ears and not to listen. And disaster comes of it. We need to pay attention when all is not right in the world. Now folks, we've reached the end of this first cycle of plagues. And although that all of them were extremely inconvenient and disgusting, yet none of them were deadly for the people. The Lord has been serious, but even in His confrontation with Pharaoh, He's tried to get him to see before death, before more blood is spilled, that he can turn back. And the Lord has confronted Pharaoh outside of his palace in the morning. He's confronted him inside of his palace in the day. And and this last plague, he didn't confront him at all. He just unleashed it. And in these next three plagues, this cycle begins all over again. Moses will go to Pharaoh outside in the morning. He'll go to him during business hours in his own palace, and then without warning, God will strike. That'll happen not only one more time, but then yet again another time. But each time it happens, the consequences get dramatically worse. So let's look, starting at this new cycle of plagues. The the water gods are dead. But human beings aren't. Amphibious creatures, we don't live on the water, we live on the land. That's where we are. And so God goes after the things that are closest to Pharaoh, that are nearest and dearest to the Egyptian people. And like with the first blow, the Lord tells Moses to go confront Pharaoh as he's having a leisurely time bathing in the Nile again. But let him know that the Lord is speaking, even though he wants to plug his ears. Let him know still. Let my people go and worship. And if He doesn't, God will strike another one of His gods dead. And this time, the Hebrew slave quarter of Goshen won't be affected at all. If it's not clear enough to you, Pharaoh, these are my people, and you will let them go. Because, the Lord says, I am the Lord of this land. Not you. Well, folks, does Pharaoh listen? Unfortunately not. And so God is true to His Word and releases a swarm of flies. Or again, scholars wonder. The word fly is very generic. It's just some sort of insect with wings. Perhaps it could be a scarab or a beetle. We're not really sure, but beetles were sacred images in Egypt. And they were associated with the god Uetic. And this god was the God that allegedly was rolled up the land from out of the, the, the waters. So they had a mythology where this, this, this giant beetle God, like a dung beetle, rolled up the land out of water and it took shape. But you get the idea that if indeed these are beetles that are swarming, and, it's, and God is going after this particular beetle God, You get then that the Lord thinks of Pharaoh and Egypt's power not as mighty, not as magnificent, 
but as no more than a mountain of dung. And you can imagine also the revulsion that the Egyptians feel as these bugs, also sacred, and they're supposed to be treated with a lot of reverence, but these bugs that are known to gather rotting feces now swarm about them, crawling all over them, destroying the land. Not only is it humiliating, but it's disgusting. And so Pharaoh, ever powerless, even if he won't admit it, summons Moses in verse 25 and says, fine, just go, worship your God, but do it on my terms. It's cute that Pharaoh thinks that after these four devastating signs from God, that he has the power to set the terms and conditions. But Moses pushes back on it. And essentially is saying some of the animals that they'll sacrifice, perhaps bulls, goats, rams, these things, were also considered sacred to the Egyptians. And so they, they may kind of rub salt in the Egyptians' wounds by taking some of their sacred animals and killing them for their own purposes. And so Moses is afraid that this is not going to go over well and says the Lord told us to go further for this reason. And so Pharaoh acquiesces and says, fine, go into the wilderness. I don't care. Oh, but also make an appeal to your God for me. See, it's amazing to me. Pharaoh, I, I, I hate to say it, folks, but when I read this story, I don't see myself in the place of Moses or the Israelites. I see myself in Pharaoh. Fine, go do your thing. And by the way, pray for me. Well, don't we love to do that as, as, as Christian people? We can be disobedient and sinful and pursuing everything in this life, our own pleasure and comfort, our own prejudices and biases, and not care about God's church or His people or His mission or God Himself. And we'll have the audacity to say to somebody, oh, pray for me. Pray for me. See, Pharaoh sees that the Lord is against him. He won't listen, but he still wants the Lord's favor. We must be careful, Christians, that we don't have Pharaoh's same rocky heart where we do whatever we want in this life. And when things go bad, we have the audacity to say, oh, pray for me. I'm not going to make any changes in my spiritual life. I'm not going to obey the Lord. I'm not going to love His people. I'm not going to care about his gospel, but I'm just, I'm sick or I'm weary or I have money. Pray for me. But God is a great God of grace. And so often, even in our hypocrisy, when we say, pray for me, have the Lord help me, he does. See, God listens to Moses' request. And he shows mercy even to this evil, petulant Pharaoh. How much more so will he show mercy even to, we might say, backsliding Christians? That's the good news for us. But Pharaoh, who double-crosses Moses, hardens his heart, and betrays the Hebrews. But more importantly, in doing so, he betrays their God, their Lord, who has said time and again, I am the God of this land and of this river and everything 
you see. All the creatures in them. It's getting tedious going through this, folks. I feel like I'm just making the same point over and over again. But that's the point. Because this is reading this Bible story is like watching a patient and rational parent try to find reasons not to discipline their toddler that's throwing a nuclear tantrum. But the toddler just digs their heels in harder and harder, not realizing that they're growing ever closer, to put it in the parlance of the South, to getting the butt-whooping of the century. The cycle continues. God tells Moses to again go into Pharaoh, not out in his leisurely morning stroll, but during business hours. And now the stakes are really high. If he will not comply and let the Lord's people go, God will assassinate something precious to Pharaoh. He'll go after his cattle gods. He'll kill the cavalry's horses, the tradesmen, donkeys, and camels, the farmers' herds and flocks. And you thought they were in dire straits before. Wait until their military, their market, and even their meal industries go belly up. Pharaoh ignored it. And God cleared Israel a safe distance away and swung His war hammer so hard that He bashed the brains of Isis, the cow-headed God, out into the hot Egyptian sands. And all of her animals dropped dead with her. Folks, you thought it, you had it bad two years ago when you couldn't get toilet paper or ibuprofen or Tyson chicken breasts. This nation lost its entire shipping industry and military industry and culinary industry and a snap of a finger. And Pharaoh's scouts ran back from Hebrew Goshen reporting not a single one of Israel's animals died. Not one! Just think in the last two years how we faced just a few restrictions in our economic and medical and culinary systems and how this has caused our entire nation at these minor inconveniences to collectively lose our minds. We've grown so weary of not living a normal life. God is with His pinky finger applied just a little bit of pressure to our gods. And we've almost been crippled by it. Imagine what will happen after continued unrepentance goes throughout this land. Imagine what's going to happen then. Imagine the devastation that Egypt has faced. The clear judgment that God has pronounced on them. And think of how they responded with fear, with trembling, with repentance. No. With pride. With demands. With more idolatry and injustice. And it makes me wonder what will happen to us if we continue to ignore the Lord's clear warnings. Pharaoh, like so many in the American church today, hardens his heart as the Lord without warning is about to complete this second cycle of judgment. Which brings us to 
our last portion of the passage today. In verses 8 and 12 of chapter 9, we read that now a bona fide pandemic breaks loose. The Lord tells Moses and Aaron to to take furnace soot. You know, the remnant of a cheery fire in the homes of the Egyptians. It's the residue of a fireplace where those comforting meals were cooked, where warmth was provided in 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 the cold night in the desert. Take that soot that's symbolic of of comfort and of home and throw it towards heaven in the sight of Pharaoh and watch as that blessing becomes a curse. No longer will the Egyptians live easy lives. The dust that will come down will pollute and rot their skin and the skin of every surviving animal that they have. And sure enough, the Lord does it. And the disease is so severe that the magicians not only can't replicate it, but they can't even get out of bed. They can't even stand in the presence of the Lord. The heat is getting greater and greater on these people. And still, still, Pharaoh does not respond. But here's where it's even worse, folks. In verse 12, we read, for the first time so far, in these cycles of plagues, that the Lord, not Pharaoh, the Lord has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Before this, Pharaoh has ignored all the signs, all the warnings, all the wonders, and he has ignored five plagues, five blows against Egypt's gods and their life. Five times he has hardened his own heart. And now the Lord is going to help him finish the job by hardening his heart and not making it possible for him to repent. Amun-Re, the Egyptian god of healing, is now dead from an anthrax infestation. And the dead animals of the land have spread their death and disease to the people. And the boils are festering so thick on the Egyptian skin that it is so clear that creation has become thoroughly unraveled. And only the Lord stands unaffected by all this. Folks, we still after this have seven, eight, nine, ten. Four plagues to go. And they have ignored the Lord so long, He has said, I'm going to make sure that they can't do anything but continue to ignore Me and feel My wrath. I worry sometimes for the state of the church in the Western world where for so long we've had it so good the secret police don't come knocking on our door of the Bible study we're trying to conduct privately in our rooms. People may not like Christians out in American culture, but it's not because we're just some persecuted minority. It's because so many Christians have become such conceited, selfish, proud jerks that they look down their nose at everybody else that doesn't come to Sunday school as often as they do. 
I worry about Christians here in the West that have not had real persecution, that have not had real difficulty. And in these last few years of so much societal disruption, whether it's political disruption, social unrest, a health crisis, and now with a war about to break out that threatens people all over the globe, I worry that we'll continue to harden our hearts so much towards God's work in this world that He'll let us just shrivel away into nothing. He'll come to the church in Atlanta and New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Seattle and remove His lampstand. Because for so long, we've had all the right songs. We dress right for church. We have all the right doctrine and theology and preaching and and, and singing. But we don't have the love that we first had when we saw that we were all pharaohs and Egyptians and the Lord loved us still. But here, O Christian, is the Gospel truth that we all need to hear after this slog of a sermon. I've struggled to get through it myself. After we sit in our pews depressed at the ravages we've read in this book and that we see out in our world, that the human race seems as bad off now as it did in ancient Egypt. After all this pride and judgment, sin and sorrow, and after we feel condemned by our own disobedience and disbelief, in the middle of all that, in the middle of all of it, we see Jesus Christ who came to live with His creatures as one of us in order to bring peace into our unstable and chaotic world. He became like us by becoming a human and dealing with all of our problems, all of our sins, all of our worries, all of our doubts, all our hypocrisies. And how does He do this ultimately? He does this not only through a life of ministry and suffering and taking all of the things that afflict our bodies, all the sickness and and sorrow and death, all the curse that's been unleashed on our sinful flesh. He absorbs it and takes it all on His shoulders on the cross and dies with it in our stead. By His wounds, Isaiah tells us, we are healed. He came to cure our plagues by being plagued Himself. He came to cast out our cruel false gods by being the true God that stands and advocates for us. He came to liberate us from the regimes of sin and death by being swallowed up on Calvary by them. And yet, what's the thanks we give this God? We crucified Him. But the Father, by the Spirit, raised this Jesus Christ from the dead. And today, He invites you, Christian, with all the chaos of your life, with all the uncertainty and pain and heartache and ignorance and even blatant sin, He invites you to come and be at peace and rest at this supper table. 
Church, don't put your hope in this creation. Whether it's in the systems of this world, whether it's in ourselves, whether it's in charismatic figures, whether it's in philosophies or financial systems or whatever it is that we love to worship. Don't put your hope in this creation that is in chaos and Paul tells us is passing away. Instead, hope only in the Creator who became one with His creation and lived and died and rose again so that we, with all the chaos that we bring to the table, might finally be at peace both now and no matter what happens forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we now share our testimonies and we confess our creed and partake of Your table, help us to put all our trust in You as our Creator and as our Redeemer. And we ask this only in Jesus' name. Amen.